so if the rules of the game are that i have to take the weakest i have to take the poorest i have to take the first generation learner and you can select and you can take the best you're then competing with iit versus an inclusion based engineering college and these are two different models so i think government schools are really good at inclusion uh, because as a mandate we have no choice if you're with special needs we have to include you if you're an orphan we have to include you if you can't afford to pay the fees we still have to include you and i think that's the opportunity that we have if you really want inclusion i think the way i think about the kind of education we want uh, educational system we want right is primarily based on the sort of simple fact that each child is unique and if you provide customized personalized input to that child then you will get more equitable outcome at the end the approach that we unfortunately have taken uh, in india the right to education act is sort of prime example of that is to standardize inputs You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR, a show featuring unlikely conversations on topics that affect our future. Here are differing perspectives from leaders and experts as they help us make sense of the most pressing issues of our time. A recently released report by the Central Square Foundation and Omidyar Network states that nearly half of the country's student population is enrolled in private schools. This can perhaps be attributed to the popular public perception that private schools in India provide a higher quality of education as compared to government schools. But the reality is different. According to the Asar Education Report in 2018, 35% of private school students in grade 5 in rural India could not read a basic grade 2 level paragraph. What we also know is that both categories of schooling systems, whether government or private, have been severely affected by the pandemic. and face challenges at multiple levels in addition to the two years of learning losses that they have to make up for there are also infrastructure and capacity issues as large numbers of students shift from private to government schools driven by their parents worsening financial conditions but what needs to happen to ensure that those at the heart of all of this the children don't suffer more than they already have how do we strengthen both systems to ensure quality of education for their future Talking about the pros and cons of our schooling system, the pandemic's impact on both, and much more, are our guests today, Aditya Natraj and Parth Shah. Aditya is the CEO of Piramal Foundation. Before taking on this role, he founded and led Kaivalya Education Foundation, which works entirely with the government schooling system. The organization and Aditya's inherent belief is that school leadership in government schools, essentially principals and teachers, can be drivers of change in education. Aditya used to work at Pratham and KPMG before he set up Kaivalya. Our second guest Parth is the founder president of the Center for Civil Society, an independent public policy think tank. Before starting the organization, Parth taught economics at the University of Michigan. His research and advocacy work focus on the themes of economic freedom, choice and competition in education, and good governance. He has been a vocal advocate of affordable private schools and the role they play in providing quality education to our children. Welcome Parth and welcome Aditya to this episode of On the Contrary. Each one of you is a proponent of government schools and affordable private schools, right? Could you speak a little bit on why you think each of these approaches that you favor is important uh, in our country's education landscape? Aditya, maybe you could start. Uh schooling is not just a utilitarian goal for the sake of the child. 
I think I'd like to zoom out and look at schooling as a larger democracy building project. We are a very young democracy. Just 76 years ago, we were 550 princely states. We did not have the concept of India. My grandparents didn't know it and my great-grandparents didn't even hear about it. We've not had the concept of a democracy. Public education is one of the key tools for building that concept. I don't know whether you remember when you were in school, but I remember my diary used to have a unity and diversity and you know all these things which are reinforced again and again because I needed to believe and affiliate. I mean, today, if you just think I need to affiliate, I am from Tamil Nadu. I need to affiliate with a person from Tripura. I need to affiliate with a person from Jammu and Kashmir. And I need to affiliate with a person from Jaisalmer, whose food, culture are quite substantially different from myself. And public education helps in the process of creating that democracy, saying what are the common values by which we live? Why have we come together? The second perspective is the social justice perspective. Right? We were a country which is uh, has huge diversity in terms of caste. There have been not just Dalits and Bahujans, but also particularly vulnerable tribal groups. And there is a sort of ranking in our society. And if the vision of the constitution is social justice, I love Ambedkar's statement in his constitutional assembly, you know, when he puts out the constitution, what he says, he says, tomorrow we are going to open into a new world where politically we'll be democratic. That is, everyone will have one vote. But socially, we will still be different because a woman is not as powerful as the man, the lower caste is not as powerful as the upper caste, the minorities will not be as powerful as the majorities. And that's the equality that our preamble aspires to. So for the social justice reasons as well, public education, making sure it's accessible to everyone is extremely critical. So I think we really need to build democracy. We need to build social justice. We need to build the idea of India. Public education system is very, very critical at this stage in the country's growth and development. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Aditya. Uh, Park, can you speak a bit about the role that private schools have, right? Aditya spoke very nicely about the role of public education in, you know, nation building and where we are as a country today. But there is a role for private schools as well. My sort of choice for uh, emphasizing the role for private schools, I think largely based on common sense, sort of experience of the fact that monopolies are bad whether monopolies are in government sector, in sarkar, or in bazaar, or in samaj, right? So monopolies are generally are bad for the people. I think it's not a very novel idea. So I think in some sectors, we want to have competition between government and private sector and civil society, samaj. I think large number of areas, we are quite okay with the competition between the two private parties. So most of the goods and services we consume are usually a result of a competition between, largely between private parties. But there are certain public goods like education, I would say healthcare. I also would put sort of social support or what we normally call welfare in that category where you don't really want to have even government monopoly. You want to create a system where there is a role for, particularly for Samaj and also for Bazaar to the extent possible. We had an aided school system in India from the very beginning. And even the government recognized the fact that uh, you need to promote uh, different kinds of schools, different approaches to education, right? different pedagogies. And therefore, I think the school system was one way of government to support private sector and provide that alternative option. Actually, if you 
no, Kerala, which has been seen as a sort of you know, signing example of education system in India, Kerala state has the highest proportion of privately managed schools compared to any other state in India. Second is similarly parental choice. I do believe that parents should have a right to choose what kind of education their children get. And that right should not be controlled by the state by just providing one kind of schooling system uh, available in the country. I think the UN Charter of Human Rights, uh, some of you probably refer to that often, has three clauses when it talks about education, right to education. The first two are about free and compulsory. It should be free, it should be compulsory. And the third clause, which is hardly ever unfortunately talked about, is the fact that the parents have a prior right to decide what kind of education will be given to their children. So even in the UN Charter, we recognize the fact that parents would have a right to choose the education that children receive. I think third, maybe about the Indian system, where we talk about the affordable or budget private schools. Right? My sort of take is that those are the schools which are largely community schools. Right? These are not the schools that somebody from outside the community came and started and is running it. Right? Usually people living in the same slum, same neighborhood, thought that this was a demand for education that was somehow not being met. And this was an opportunity for them uh, to provide education. Those three reasons, I think, to me, tell me very clearly that we need to emphasize uh, multiple systems of delivery of education. And just to sort of, to the point, just to engage with the dialogue on, with uh, Aditya on this, right? People usually assume what he talked about, about uh, idea of India, social justice, right? People normally assume that that can happen only in government schools. Even private schools are equally capable, if not more, in promoting that kind of inclusiveness, in promoting that kind of solidarity and social justice, right? So I think it's just the assumption that's largely being made that it can only happen in public schools and there's not much research to support that assumption. Thank you, Parth. And I think, um, you know, both of you touched upon important reasons about why, you know, you work with the systems that you all do work. Uh, I also know that both of you all don't operate at two extremes, right? Like, Aditya, you don't believe that government schooling system is the only way to go. And Parth, you know, similarly, right? You're about people having choice. But uh, could you all speak a little bit on other things that the government schooling system does better? And you've touched upon some of those, Aditya. And certain things that the private system, schooling ecosystem does better. I think the way I think about the kind of education we want, uh, educational system we want, right? is primarily based on the sort of simple fact that each child is unique. And if you provide customized, personalized input to that child, then you will get more equitable outcome at the end. The approach that we unfortunately have taken uh, in India, the Right to Education Act is sort of prime example of that, is to standardize inputs. So if each child is unique, if you provide standardized input, you get very unequal outcome. The idea of equity, which is of course very important in education, and the way we are trying to achieve that equity, at least so far in our history, is largely standardizing inputs. So thinking has been that how can I provide equitable education to all children across such a diverse country like India, right? How could I have a school in Bolangir, which is as good as in Bangalore? And therefore, the focus in achieving that equity is largely on building the same type of schools. Buildings should be of this kind, right? Library must have this many books. The teacher must have these qualifications, they must be paid these salaries, right? So those are all the input infrastructure norms that we have developed. And the Right to Education Act, of course, primarily focuses on that in order to achieve equitable outcome. But if you believe really that each child is unique, then you need to provide differential input. 
which is suitable, personalized to that child. Private school systems do more of that. There's a lot more pressure on the system to deliver a little more on that front, to respond a little more to parental demand, which may, may not be the right thing all the time. So we know the parents can also be misguided about what they demand from the schools. But generally, I think over a period of time, my sense is that if you want to build a system for a long term, then you need to allow parents to play that role. And maybe we need to educate them. Maybe that's a role for Samaj and Sarkar, is to educate parents about what makes a good education, what's good for their children, right? And I can easily justify that role for other people to play. But I would not want to bypass parents just by the assumption that they are illiterate, there are first-generation learners, and therefore, no, what do they know about schools? What do they know about education? And therefore, leave it all to the experts. So uh, I don't disagree that uh, equity is the final goal. I think that's the beauty of what both Parth and I are saying, right? The question is, how do you reach that uh, social equity? I think the reality is that when you go into private schools, I agree with you know the low-budget private schools, which are just set up, they're mom-and-pop shops, and they're okay. But as soon as you go one level above that, the reality is that that private school is more likely to not admit a child with special needs or learning disabilities. You know, I went to a government school in Delhi, which was a very high-performing government school, and I interviewed the principal of the school, asked him, how are you performing so well? You know, he was performing better than private schools. And this is about 12, 15 years ago. He said, I'm doing what private schools do. We do the same thing that private schools do. So I said, what do you do? He said, in grade eight, we wean out 10-15% of the children. In grade nine, we wean out another 10-15% of the children and tell their parents to put them in some other school. So by grade 10, we have 100% pass rather than 70% pass. If private schools are allowed to do this, why can't I do it? So if the rules of the game are that I have to take the weakest, I have to take the poorest, I have to take the first generation learner, and you can select and you can take the best, you're then competing with IIT versus an inclusion-based engineering college. And these are two different models. So I think government schools are really good at inclusion uh, because as a mandate, we have no choice. If you're with special needs, we have to include you. If you're an orphan, we have to include you. If you can't afford to pay the fees, we still have to include you. And I think that's the opportunity that we have. If you really want inclusion, I come from the corporate sector. I'm all for private incentives for this delivery, but I'm not able to see how to create the incentives in order that inclusion is also served. And I think that's what government schools are really good at. Yes, government schools do inclusion far better. While Parth, like you said, private schools are better structured and incentivized to respond to each student's uniqueness. So what is it according to you, Parth, that makes parents choose one system over another beyond just the economics? In terms of why parents prefer private schools, there are, of course, many reasons. Often, I think one of the primary reasons people cite is the English medium. Parents see that uh, as a sort of ticket to a better future for their children. I also assume that, frankly, that's what most people talk about. That's what parents usually say when you ask them. My sort of view sort of began to change sometime in the mid-2000, in about 2005 onwards, when we began to do a voucher pilot. So we ran a voucher pilot program in Delhi. It is a small pilot program but that allowed me to sort of interact with parents in a longer period of time. It was like three-year pilot programs. So I was interacting with the same group of parents over a three-year period, right? So you build sort of some kind of rapport. You get to know them a little better. They get to trust you. 
right? You visit their homes, so you see what's going on there. And as I began to engage a little more, I realized that what I assume is their reason for preference is really last on the list. The things they actually talk about, which animates them when they talk about those things, right? Is for, for example, something that we trivialize it. The fact that schools check their nails, right? It's an important thing for parents. The fact that school checks their uniform, whether it's washed or not, whether shoes are polished or not, right? Is important for the parents. They see this is the way to instill discipline, instill hygiene, which unfortunately they are not able to do given the places they live. And so they see a school adding the extra value to their kids' life and their future, right? For example, the schools actually close their gate. So if you're more than 10 minutes late, the gate is closed. The homework is given, not just is given, is checked. Now, how well is checked? One can dispute all of those things. But his parents can see that the homework notebook that child brought it back is being written over by this teacher, whatever he or she has written over that. May be valuable, may not be valuable. But they see that is happening, right? The teachers are engaged on a daily basis. So I think those are the factors which really animate parents in choosing the schools. And you can now contrast each one of them in terms of what the perception is, what generally what happens in government schools. And I think you can understand why parents are willing to sacrifice. The parents earning 20,000 rupees, one third of that income, monthly income is spent about uh, on education. This is everything, right? Not just school fees, the tuition class, all of those things that parents do do. And so it's not an easy choice for parents to uh, send even one child out of three or four uh, to a private school. It's a huge sacrifice. Aditya, perception of the private sector being better than like a government sector thing. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, I think there's definitely a perception problem in government versus private. So ASAR data has uh, shown that adjusting for socioeconomic differences, private and public, are actually delivering at the same levels. Unfortunately, that's not the perception in the market. Now, the reality is if you are from the second quartile in the country and going to a private school, and I'm from the fourth quartile and going to a public school, and then you're comparing and you're telling me that you're better, your parent is actually the one who's educating you. So I think there's a perception difference. Two is any district in the country runs about 2,000 schools. There'll be one school in which, you know, 2,000 schools, half a million children, uh, you'll be serving midday meal half a million times, even at a Six Sigma level there will be a possibility that one of those meals is infected in one of six days of the week. But that will be blown out of proportion by the media. The government does not work. On the other hand, the private schools give ads in the local media, saying my child got 98%, 97.6%, and 97.2%. And governments don't give ads in the paper. Right? So systematically, there is a belief that government does not work and that private works. On the other hand, IIT works. IIT is completely government. IIM works. IIM is completely government. There, in fact, if you set up a private institution, by the time you catch up with IIM's reputation or IIT's reputation, you know, it's going to take you many, many years. So something has happened because of which perceptions in the school sector are such that we believe that government schools don't work. But let me tell you a live example, right? A teacher uh, who I worked with. Uh, principal of a school. Now this teacher works on this child from grade one to three and uh, she starts performing. As soon as she starts performing, the parent says, we didn't think this girl would be able to study. She seems quite smart. Let's put her in the private school. 
and so they moved the girl to the private school and the principal came out crying two years later the child was not performing enough because she is not used to this heavily disciplined overly uh, environment she needs love she needs care she needs a sense of joy whereas that was like an over regimented army type school uh, and the child was not performing and the parents had to bring her back to the school i'm giving this example to say that different children need different types of things the reality is in rural areas there is a bunch of schools who are extremely regimented and the discipline uh, that they require is detrimental to children's growth so while cleaning of nails i'm extremely comfortable with the more homework you give you're perceived as a better school the more you scold my child you're perceived as a better school these are perceptions unfortunately and i have to stall governments from giving in to consumer needs education is not a customer focused alone business if your child asks for something you don't serve it immediately because education is the process by which you help the child self regulate herself right you can't prevent it you can't allow it you have to have that constant negotiation and i think if school systems become too consumer centric saying i will listen to the parent and the parent will listen to the child you will create a society which is quite dysfunctional as opposed to able to regulate itself so therefore i think we have to be careful about listening to parental choice but at the same time let me be very clear if all schools were government schools i would be the first one to stand up and protest because i think we need innovation and we need choice and therefore it's about balance so i'd be the biggest one to protest if that was the case because i can't stand any system where there is only one big brother who's going to decide what's happening i completely agree with the argument on monopolies and lack of innovation government schools let's admit it in india at least are not as innovative as they need to be they are standardizing inputs and hopefully we can learn from private schools how to do something differently and at the same time i think private schools can learn from us how to be more inclusive and not to be compete with 98.7% marks versus 98.6% marks and therefore distort what education actually means uh, which is a much more comprehensive lower income communities need also to explore sports my higher income community needs to explore arts or sports the reduction into a simplistic metric of academics uh, which i think is being pushed because how else do you differentiate yourself you got 98% i got 97% i must be a better school than you i want customers more than you and that's where it starts distorting it that's where i think the boundaries of the private school system start showing up and the negative aspects of it until then i think it's a damn good system i'm i think equally proud of the fact that we have great iits and iiims even though they may be run by the government i hope government was able to do the similar thing with school education as they have done in higher education so i think there is no doubt in my mind i think aditya will also agree that we are both in favor of both systems uh, as long as they do well by the children that's ultimately what our concern is now in terms of perception reality you have to ask what is being measured by a search survey or for that matter any other research which is being done looking at the learning outcomes right that's what they are trying to quantify and judge uh, which school uh, performs better what they measure is purely academic part that's what can be measured and on that basis they are making a difference between the two kinds of schools what i talked about earlier what parents really want and why they choose private schools academics actually is not as important and most parents actually are unable to even judge the quality of academic performance of the school they are able to judge whether the school is teacher is engaged every day or not right so all the other things which matter to parents are not even measured in any of this research 
right? which is my beef with many of the researchers. You are measuring what's easy to measure, three hours basically. Right? That's what we are measuring. Right? And so I think it's important to understand that the perception and the reality difference is based on our assumption of what is measurable, which is different than how parents are making choice. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR. We'll be right back after this break. Most of us don't like to fail, and so we try and avoid it at all costs. But failure is natural, and there can be no success without it. In fact, it teaches us invaluable lessons about what not to do and how to make things right. IDR's new podcast, Failure Files, puts stories of failure front and center, where you can listen to candid perspectives and lessons from social entrepreneurs working on some of the world's toughest problems. Listen and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. And now, back to the show. Both of you all have said that parents have their own criteria and preferences for deciding what's a good school and what isn't. But the pandemic has changed some of that, right? And a lot of it has been due to economic reasons. Basically, parents not being able to send their kids to private schools because their own jobs and livelihoods were badly affected during this time. Can both of you speak, and maybe Aditya, we can start with you, saying what this transition has done both for the system as well as, you know, for the children, as in what have been some of the challenges that this has thrown up with kids moving into the government system? Pandemic has just messed up this whole situation like there's no tomorrow, right? We pride ourselves on the districts in which we work. The number of private schools comes down and the enrollment in government schools goes up because government schools start performing. It's not just a perception management. You have to start performing. And uh, so we can show you graphs which were, you know, uh, government enrollments going down for the last seven to 10 years, which then plateaued for one or two years and then started going up again in government schools. But I want to win based on performance. I don't want to win because of economic reasons, which is what is currently happening. Current reason why children are re-enrolling in government schools is not because of my performance, is because parents have lost their jobs and therefore can't afford to continue to send in private schools. So therefore, I'm welcoming them, but I want to acknowledge that that's the reason it's happening. It's not because of my performance. So if you see the sudden blip of about one and a half, two percent that we're getting in India at the moment is purely because of economic reasons. And this is going to cause a mess at multiple levels. It's going to cause a mess for teachers, for parents and for planners. As an educational planner, I'm wondering whether this is going to be consistent sitting at the state level or whether this 2% of parents is going to go back to private school. So I can't quickly up my capacity to handle 2% more children. It's really, really difficult. Uh, if I'm in government of UP and I have to plan for 2% more children, uh, I'm talking about 100,000 more teachers. I mean, do you think they're just going to be available overnight? Do you think budgets are going to be available overnight? No chance. Uh, it's not going to happen, right? So I think for planners are in a bit of a mess. And suppose I create that capacity and then tomorrow the children go back to private schools because I'm not able to deliver or parents, I'm not able to manage performance. I'm suddenly stuck with a dead investment, right? And then everyone will come and shout at me that my teachers don't have enough student-teacher ratios. So I think planners are in a mess. Teachers are in a mess because planners are not giving the additional teachers. The additional 2% of children are joining the schools. And 2% is the average. When you go inside individual communities, you realize that the percentages can be as high as 25 or no difference as well. Right? So teachers are in a mess because suddenly there are more children in the class. Most importantly, those children were probably in an English medium till grade 4. And suddenly they've come into me in grade 6 without having gone for two years to any school. And I'm teaching Hindi medium. 
right? So how am I even supposed to manage this? Uh, you're used to seeing a textbook in English. Now I'm going to give you a textbook in Hindi. Uh, your friends are different, but you know, 80% of your friends are still in the private school. 20% have come here. You're wondering whether this is temporary. There's stress at home. So that's coming into the parent side of things. Schooling is unfortunately a social value item in India. If you wonder why so many people do college and don't take jobs, especially women, because unfortunately, BA pass has social value. It is not the utilitarian economic value. It is not even the value to the individual. There is value in society saying that Mary Beatty graduate, hai. my daughter is a graduate, right? But you don't expect her to work. I want her to be a graduate and I don't want her to work. Both are true, unfortunately, right? So same way, schooling in private versus public also has social value. So if I'm a middle to upper caste and my child has gone back to the government school, it is probably more demeaning than my having lost my job. I will mumble it under my breath in the next family get together. So I think there is a churn in society as a result of all this. And I'm not even talking about the two years of learning loss, whether it's private or government, everyone has lost enormously. Uh, in the last two years, our schools have been open only 9, 10th, 11, 12th for less than 100 days. And grade one to five has been practically closed across the country. So that is going to be, I don't think either Parth or I is going to survive this impact. I hope we're all able to get together to solve this. I fully agree with Aditya that uh, pandemic has created problems for both systems. I agree that you know government system would find it very difficult to deal with the influx of students, uh, which they are going to face just because of the fact that parents have become poorer. I think I have two sort of uh, points there. One is about economics. I think people usually assume the economics are working in favor of private schools and against government schools. But actually, it's precisely economics which is keeping the government schools even alive. So look at what government schools are offering. There's no, of course, tuition fee, right? They're offering on the top of that, there's a free textbooks, free uniforms. In many cases, they offer even cash to students who have particular attendance. Government schools are surviving because all of these things are given for free. Now imagine what would have happened if none of these things were given for free. Even if there was no tuition fee, but there was nothing else given for free. On the top of that, look at the teachers. The salaries of teachers in government schools are far, far higher than what per capita income in India would able to justify. Right? And there's a research done by UN itself, which shows, for example, average government school teacher salary vis-a-vis uh, -vis per capita income of the country. And they compare countries across the world. Right? For example, the ratio in France is 1.2, meaning the average teacher actually earns 1.2 times uh, more than the average uh, person in the country per capita income. Do you want to guess what the ratio is in, for India? It's 13. 13 times more than per capita income, which is the highest in the world. Highest. Even the so-called capitalist countries don't offer that. The economics is working largely in favor of government schools. Private school cost is one-tenth. And some people argue it's one-twentieth of the cost of the same learning achievement in government schools. I think we also have to think about the economics of it because what are we paying to get these outcomes that we do get. In terms of pandemic, I fully agree that both systems are going to face a problem. I actually worry more about the kids who are going to be forced to go to government schools from private schools. Because just imagine a sort of kid in grade six now going to government school who has so far gone to private school. Now in private school, at least in most private schools, is English medium which is why one choice, reason for the choice. But now when I go to government school, 
grassroots projects in his own local language, whichever language that may be of that particular state or the district. Textbooks are in local language. My exams will be in local language, right? Now I worry a lot about those kids, and there could be millions of them, even two, three percent of population moving to government schools. And what would happen to those kids? I think that's a tragedy, really a serious tragedy, waiting to happen. And unfortunately, there is not really much thought given to how to deal with that. And that brings you to the simple question that during the pandemic, we provided support to small factories, MSMEs. So a two-room factory got a financial support or loan or waiver on the loan or postponement or payment of loan. Right? They got financial support to survive the pandemic. A four-room school, private school, budget private school, got no support, none at all from the society at large, from the government itself. All the support largely went to the government schools or the non-profit that work in the education sector. Most of them work to help the government school students and teachers to train them how to get online and all of that. Nobody has supported private schools, teachers. How do they get online? So I think my fear is that the way people are thinking about the impact of pandemic, right, is not taking into account what's really most important is the future of these millions of kids who are going to migrate from private school to government schools. Both of you have spoken about like the fears you have, right? But I want both of you all to end on what is the hope you all have, right? As in, what do you hope for in the education system for our country? I'm an eternal optimist. I'm delusional, maybe. I don't believe that glass is half full. I believe the glass is 99% full most of the time. But you know, we're only a 75-year-old democracy. Uh, the fact that we even managed to pull this country together and it didn't splinter and didn't become chaos, I think is a shock. 300 years from now, they'll wonder how did that happen? It's not even possible. Uh, so I think we've pulled the country together. And if I just look, 20 years ago, I joined the sector. In 2002, there was a probe report which said there were 87 million children out of school in India. It's a huge number. That's more than the population of Germany. Today, there are about 13 million. I'm not condoning 13 million as a number, but in 20 years to have brought that many children and actually our base is much larger. On a much smaller base, we had 87 million out of school. Parents know the only way out is education and more education. So one, I think at a societal level, we have uh, the perceptions about education being our ticket out of poverty is, I think, very embedded. Second reason for positivity is the fact that the government, I mean, 20 years ago, Education was a directive principle of state policy. There was no right to education. There was no educational cess. There was no national curriculum framework. There was no national education policy the way it is today. All these are building blocks which you might not see the gains of immediately. But, you know, to create right to education was a movement for 15 years before it finally uh, became a right. So now I have a right to education. Uh, there is an educational provisioning. You, I... Part, all of us pay for an educational cess, uh, which goes in additionally apart from the taxes that we pay. So I think the financing, the policy, the infrastructure availability is all getting much, much better than we could ever have imagined it. I think the key that we also push for is decentralization. I don't know why states need to decide things. An individual district in India handles 800 to 2,500 schools. That's a huge number. You don't need anybody else to think about you because even there's enough standard deviation within that group. 
So how do you decentralize to districts? If you go further down from a district at a block level, there are 100 to 150 schools. I would love for more power to be there at that level, at the block and the district level, and finally at the school and at the teacher level. Uh, there is no need for, I think, the power distribution between teacher, school, cluster, block, district, and state needs to be rebalanced much more towards the teacher. And that is a journey for the next 30 years. But when you speak to administrators, the main issues is we are not able to perform. So the perception is the way to perform is to take power. Actually, the way to perform is to decentralize and hold people accountable. And I think that shift in India is going to take another five, seven years before we recognize that. In business, it took us 10, 15 years before we recognized how to handle talent. We used to still imagine that by controlling and by barking, you get better value. Now, slowly in private sector, we realize that doesn't work. And we're wondering why people are resigning. You have to create sense of purpose. You have to uh, delegate. You have to empower and then hold accountable. Government systems need to learn those tools. Parth, what gives you hope? I think I'm also optimist like Aditya is. I think as you know that the work that we do, either in policy or on the ground, you cannot continue to do that work for year after year unless you're optimistic. <laughs> there is just no way you can function, right? <laughs> so I, I think we both, I think, uh, in the heart are very optimistic. But I have to say that my experience with the pandemic really has sort of questioned what I thought was improving. Right? So I see very anti-private sector, anti-parental choice sort of mindset right? within the government, which obviously has existed in the bureaucracy for a long time for obvious reasons. But also I think larger in the larger society, which became obvious uh, in terms of what happened in the, in the last two years and what support private school did not get. And here we are not talking about high fee private schools, we are talking about low fee, very low fee private schools. Right? And so that has really made me a little less optimistic in terms of how the future can evolve. Now, yes, the NEP has made some right noises and you can say that's a really optimistic sign that remains to be seen how far they would actually come through and when rubber meets the road, when it actually gets implemented. Right? And so I'm a little less sanguine now in terms of what is going to emerge as a result of uh, what we have experienced. Thank you, Aditya and Parth. Clearly, both systems, whether they're government or private, have their pros and cons. While the former is inclusive in terms of admission of students and the delivery of education, it also relies on standardizing inputs to cater to the scale it operates at. Private schools, on the other hand, attempt to offer what the market wants. They cater to parents' demands for quality education with engaged teachers and disciplinary systems. As is on your show, on the contrary, you both may come from differing schools of thought, but you do agree on one thing, choice. It can't be all government and it can't be all private. We need to give parents the option to choose what is best for their children's needs and what is best for their future. In this sense then, gaps in government and private systems need to be looked at. And perhaps with the pandemic having changed how schooling works completely, the entire education system needs a complete remodeling. So thank you once again, Aditya and Parth, for being part of the discussion today. Thank you for listening to On the Contrary by IDR. I'm Smaranita Shetty, co-founder and CEO of IDR, an online journal that publishes cutting-edge ideas and insights, written by and for people working on some of India's toughest problems. We believe that knowledge has the power to drive change, and our platform serves as a stage for underserved topics, unheard voices, and the counter-narratives that are crucial to achieving social progress. 
To learn more about the ideas featured on this podcast, as well as the latest thinking on social impact, visit our website www.idronline.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On the contrary, is produced by Rachita Vora, Smarnita Shetty, and Shreya Adhikari. This episode was hosted by Smarnita Shetty. Production by Made in India.